My name is Dennis, and I have the privilege of bringing to you God's Word this morning. I'm one of the elders here, recent new addition to uh, the staff as an associate pastor. Praise the Lord for that. Um, Joel sends you his greetings from Georgia. Uh, he and his family have taken a, a vacation, and uh, he's probably on the beach at this very moment listening to this uh, webcast. So um, hopefully they're getting some good rays and, and, and be encouraged by some preaching. Um, I want to thank Bryson and uh, David and Ned for leading us this morning. It's been very encouraging to, to listen to you guys lead. It's been wonderful. I would uh, like you to turn into your Bibles this morning to John chapter 17. I realize today is August 6th. This is the first Lord's Day of the month. Typically, we would be in a psalm. We would. And we are still going to get to hear that wonderful psalm. But I would be remiss to preach that psalm um, because Andrew has been faithfully studying and faithfully preaching um, out of the Psalms, the brunt of it, up till now. And if there's anyone that I would want to sit under for Psalm 51, which is where we're going to land, it would be sitting under Andrew and listening to him exposit that Psalm of David. So today we will be in John chapter 17, as I said a little bit ago. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a, a pew Bible in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, we would like that Bible to be a gift to you. John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to the heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours were they, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to see you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. This is the word of our Lord. 
John chapter 17 is a passage that is beloved by many. John Knox, who was the person who brought the Protestant Reformation to Scotland, whenever he was on his deathbed and he lay there, he asked his wife to read this passage to him as it brought much encouragement to, you, to him. John chapter 17 is a prayer of our Lord. Jesus is God. He is sovereign over all things. He is creator. He is sustainer. He is consummator. He is the invisible imprint of the nature of God. He is God in the flesh who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. This is a prayer by Jesus. And it's in this prayer that we have the longest recorded narrative of any prayer by Jesus to God the Father. There's your subheading in your Bible might say high priestly prayer. That might be a little reminiscent to you as we have been working through the book of Hebrews. Jesus is our great high priest. This prayer was offered by Jesus moments after he had spent much time teaching and discipling his disciples. The previous chapters, chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, were all rich teaching that Jesus gave his disciples before he went to the cross. They were in the upper room, which is why many theologians and pastors call this discourse the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse. And this truly shows Jesus was about to be betrayed by Judas. We'll get to that later on. This shows truly where Jesus' priorities were at. He knew that his death was coming. It was imminent. He warned the disciples, if you remember, he warned them many times. No one takes my life from me, but I will lay it down on my own accord. He reminded them many times that he was to suffer. He was the Messiah. He would lay down his life. And yet, he prays. This prayer shows us, again, Jesus' humiliation, how he emptied himself, and he prays to the Father. His disciples must have been an earshot from Jesus where he was praying at in the upper room. It must have been encouraging to hear Jesus priesting for his people. And it also should be encouraging to us. Again, thinking about the book of Hebrews as we've been working through that by the grace of God, knowing that Jesus is our great high priest, knowing that at this very moment, he lives to make intercession for his people. So we get a glimpse in John 17 of what Jesus is currently doing for his people. And it's within this prayer of John 17 that Jesus makes six petitions. We only read through verse 12, so you only probably saw a few if you caught it. However, there are five petitions that he makes on behalf of people. And these petitions are requests. If you remember Paul, where he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your request be known to God. Jesus was making his request known to God. 
And these are the five petitions that he makes on behalf of people, that they would be kept, that they would be protected, that they would have unity, that they would be sanctified, that they would have joy, that they would see his glory. And I'm going to argue that these people that Jesus is praying about, they're not random people, but they are particular people. Thus, I have entitled this sermon, Petitions for Particular People. And today, we're going to be covering only two petitions, covering a petition that Jesus makes for himself and also a petition that Jesus makes on, the ha- on behalf of other people. And Lord willing, as I'm given other opportunities to preach, then we're going to cover these other petitions. So the way that Jesus prays, he mentions specific things. A little caveat here. The way that he prays, he mentions certain things, and he circles back, and he keeps circling back. And every time he circles back to a theme that he's praying about, he adds an additional layer. And in my study, I found it really hard to track. So there's a couple of ways that preachers look at a text, they study a text, and they give the text to their people. The first way is they look at the text sequentially. They look at it word by word and verse by verse. The other way is looking at a text thematically, where they look at themes. One could read John 17, and your heart is just like bursting with happiness because you see and hear and read some common themes in John John chapter 17. We literally could be here for months But for the sake of today and for future times whenever I have an opportunity to preach through John chapter 17, we're going to be looking at this not only sequentially, but also thematically. And it's through these petitions that John records Jesus saying on behalf of his people where I'm going to argue that Jesus loves you. I know that seems very rudimentary. I know that Jesus loves me. Do you? Do you know that? If there were some statistic where it recorded, I'm pretty sure I could find it, where pastors and biblical counselors have sessions with their counselees, I would imagine that there are many people who talk with biblical counselors who struggle with understanding just how much God loves them. So, is it important that us, that we, remind ourselves of God's love for us? Absolutely, it is. And if you are saying, Dennis, I know that, I know that God loves me, well, praise be to God that that reality has been shed abroad in your heart because that in itself is the grace of God. But there are many of us, even me in the past, where it ebbed and when it flowed, where some of these thoughts that I had were just, they would lead me into despair, where I was in the slough of despond. And that may sound familiar to you as we've been working through Pilgrim's Progress, where these swirling doubts, uh, whenever I was walking maybe through some sin that I just could not shake, I could not mortify, I could not kill, does God still love me? And maybe you're not battling with any ongoing sin. Not that you've reached any kind of perfectionism. 
that doesn't exist on this side of glory. Maybe you're walking through some affliction. Maybe you're walking through some trial. And it is so hard, and it is so tough. And you're wondering, does God still love me? So beloved, I pray this morning that you are encouraged and you can echo what John said in his first epistle, behold what manner of love is this. I recently saw an article online that said, here are the most powerful words that a parent can share with their kids. The number one, I love you. Now, many of you godly parents in here that probably amazing parents, that doesn't come by surprise. And this is a reality and a truth that you tell your kids often because you mean it, but also because of how powerful it is. And it is no different. The Lord has given us his word. He has given us love letters. He has shown us in this grand story of redemption, the future hope and promise of glory. Spanning thousands of years, God showcasing his love for his people that he foreknew, that he called, that he redeemed, that he justified, that he currently sanctifies. And it's good that we remind ourselves of this. I came to find a Martin Lloyd-Jones quote, our beloved Welsh pastor, and he says this, in the Christian life there are many problems and difficulties, but more and more it seems that most of our problems, if not all of them, arise from the simple fact that we fail to realize and understand and appreciate what the real truth is about us as God's people. We read these things in Scripture without meditating on them. We don't realize that these aren't abstract truths. This is about me. This is about us. And if we did that, our lives would be revolutionized. So let's go back to the text. We're going to begin with Jesus' petition for himself. Verse 1. Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to the heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. When Jesus had spoken these words, what words? These were the words that he, as I mentioned a little bit ago, that he just shared with his disciples in verses, I'm sorry, in chapters 13 through 16. Jesus lifted up his eyes whenever we pray. What do we do? Do we lift up our eyes? We bow our heads. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that. When Jesus lifts up his eyes to the heaven, what's he doing? He is showing who he is talking to. Father, the hour has come. This is the time, as I mentioned a little bit ago, showing Jesus' priorities. The time has come. What has come? 
The time was here. The time was at hand. The purpose of Jesus being sent was upon him. He was about to be betrayed. He was about to be taken into custody. He was about to be beaten. He was about to be mocked and crucified. Jesus knew what was coming. And at this time that it's here, who does Jesus pray for? He prays for himself. And what was his petition? What was Jesus' request on behalf of himself? Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Whenever we hear the word glorify, it should ring a bell. We sung about it just a little bit ago, which was by no coincidence, of course. We routinely pray that God is glorified in our music, in our worship here. We routinely pray that God is glorified in our preaching, in our one anothering, in our lives. And glorified in the Greek comes from the word doxa, D-O-X-A. Does that sound familiar to you? This is where we get our word doxology. And in the song doxology, which we sing on occasion, especially if you're ever at a foundations meal and we're gathering in Joel's house, we begin this fellowship together by singing a hymn of praise. Doxa, doxology, glorify. In glorifying, we are praising. We are honoring. We are making much of the one who is worthy to be made much of. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. In other words, Jesus was saying, Father, make much of me so that I can make much of you. Any other person could pray that prayer. Any one of us, Father, make much of me so I can make much of you. How selfish of a prayer that would be. That would take a lot of guts or stupidity to ask the Lord, make much of me, Lord, so that I can make your name great. Not good for us, but it is good for Jesus. Jesus is glorified through what? What is he talking about here? He is talking about the cross. The cross, from a worldly perspective, is shameful. But from a spiritual perspective, it's a moment of great glory, not only for the Father, but the Son. It points to the Father making a way for a holy God to be reconciled to a sinful people, causing his Son, from Isaiah 53, to become a guilt offering to make a many, many accounted righteous. It points to the Son in his passive obedience to the Father, satisfying the Father's wrath by purchasing by his blood people who then he would make righteous. And it was this glorification, it was the cross that Jesus was resolute to. Although he knew that it was no small ordeal, the cross. The Gospels record him saying, let this cup pass from me. But 
as we read in our grace verse just a moment ago. Hebrews 12, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. I'm not going to take away from that future sermon that Joel is going to give us, but Jesus was motivated. He was motivated to go to the cross. He knew what was coming. He knew that his life would need to be laid down. He knew that he, what he was doing. It was no surprise to him. We could launch into a discussion here about what's called the covenant of redemption. A covenant, an agreement, a commitment made between the Father and the Son before the foundation of the world that Jesus, at a specific time, at the right time, Scripture says, died for the ungodly. But we're not going to go there. We know that the cross brings the Father glory. Jesus knew that. He delighted to do the Father's will. He desired to be in the presence of God once that task was completed, where he would then sit at the right hand of God in majesty. So Jesus prays for himself, make much of me, so that you are made much of, so that your name is manifested to the nations, so that you draw people unto yourself, so that you call and redeem Purchase, justify a people for yourself. And then we move on after Jesus makes this petition. We are given some truth here to chew on, to think about. Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. We can read right here, and you can hear my voice, that the Father gives Jesus authority over all flesh, and that authority is to what? Give eternal life. Eternal life is a gift. We know that. We know that it's a gift. That's like Christianity one-on-one. We know that it's a gift. We should know that it's something that we don't deserve. It's something that's not given to us because we are meritorious in some way, that we have some righteousness of our own because we don't. Eternal life is a gift. And this should not be any surprise because Jesus in John 10, the same thing is uttered from his mouth. You can turn there if you want to. We're actually gonna go back there a little bit later. John John 10 Uh, 27 and 28. John, again, records Jesus saying this. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and what? I give them eternal life. Who does Jesus give according to John chapter 10? Who does he give eternal life to? Sheep. These are his followers. These are not random people. Jesus doesn't say, I give eternal life to everybody. We know that doctrine, a false doctrine of universalism. Not everyone is saved. Not everyone is given eternal life. But Jesus' sheep are given eternal life. 
Eternal life is a gift according to both of these texts. To who? Sheep, yes, according to John 10. Going back to John 17. To all whom you have given him. This is talking about people that are given to the Son. If something is given, what is it? It's a gift, right? We are given eternal life. Sheep are given eternal life. To all whom you have given him. This is the Father giving people to the Son. So we read, the Father gave his Son a gift, and it was people. This is not the possibility of people. Well, can you imagine a, a conversation from the Father to the Son? I'm going to try to get you a good gift. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not sure if you're going to have many people. I'm going to give you a gift. You, you might have one. No. It is not random people. It is not the possibility of people. It is particular people. And this is from the text. I didn't cherry pick this from some 16, 17 um, historic church confession, right? This is from the text. To all whom you have given him. This is particular people given to the Son. Particular people that God had in mind. We read in John 17, 2, that the Son gives eternal life to all whom you have given him. But this is not the first time that this language was on Jesus' mouth. Again, let's read a little bit further. Let's skip down to John 17, 6. I manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours were they, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. John 17, 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Who do they belong to? They are yours. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. The idea of this gift of particular people is not only reserved for John, John 17 in those few passages that I gave you. We're going to go back to John chapter 6. Let's go to John 6. We're going to be in 36 through 40 on these two occasions in Scripture where we see another instance of a giving of people. John 6, 36 through 38. But I said to you that you have seen me and you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. A little bit further down, 39 and 40. This is the will of my Father who sent me, that all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. 
And this is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have, may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, beloved, what I want to show you here this morning is how crucial the order is. And it's crucial, this order, to understanding salvation biblically. Jesus does not say, all who come to me will be given, but rather, all who are given will come. People do not determine by their response who will be the Father's gift to the Son. There is no one in all of creation, before they come to know God, say to themselves, self, I think I'm going to be a gift to the Son today. It doesn't happen. Rather, their response is determined by what? The prior decision of God for us to come to the Son. Particular people given as gifts. Surely this must happen at some point in time. At some point, this plan was carried out. Absolutely. I would love for us to go to the first book, the first chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians 1. We've been all over the book of John. John 17. John chapter 10. John chapter 6. Now in Ephesians 1. If we all had all, all afternoon, I could give you many more. Many more. Verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. People who are given as gift to the Son are not random, but particular. Particular because they are chosen. We could easily launch into a discussion about the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination. I love, I would love that. I'd love having conversations with people who affirm these things, with people who don't affirm these things. That's not my intent. But the text is there. I am not forcing it. I am not reading something else. I'm not reading an idea into it. People are given, not random, specific, particular My encouragement then, if you're one of those that reads these passages from 6, 10, and 17 of John, Ephesians 1, we can go to Philippians, we can go to 1 Thessalonians, 
And if you feel the tension there, you're right where you need to be. This tension, if you feel that, was felt by me and felt by many of us. But instead of just fighting against it, instead of despising it, I would hope and pray that you would go to the text, that you would pray to the Lord for understanding. By the Spirit's help, he would help you understand these tough passages. Don't ignore them. and Don't deny them. Going back to the text, this eternal life that's been gifted to particular people, what else does it involve? Verse three, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So to experience eternal life is to know God. Not to know about God. Not to know facts about him, but to know him. So what does this mean? There is a relationship there. We must know him personally. And that relationship, for many, is like a point of contention because people are all about the relationship and they're like, but I don't want that doctrine stuff. No, it's knowing that we have a relationship with Christ leads us to praise. Knowing that we have this beautiful doctrine that is from Scripture should lead us to praise as well. These things shouldn't be points of tension. It's important to know God. We must know God. In Pilgrim's Progress, we learned about a character named Talkative. And Talkative is someone who, he was a different kind of pilgrim. He was fervent in his faith. He knew his Bible well. He affirmed the doctrine of grace, that salvation is by grace, and not by works, like these are things that talkative affirmed. Again, he was different. And he was different because he didn't understand the gospel of grace. Interesting. So there were things that he could understand and things that he couldn't understand. What else? Talkative lived a completely different life than what he professed. His life was replete with willful sin. He caused many others to stumble. And brothers and sisters, there are many talkatives in the world. Again, talkatives don't truly know the Lord. They know things about him. There is a difference in knowing God personally and knowing facts about God and all the wonderful Bible stories like Noah and the ark and the splitting of the Red Sea, Jesus even dying on the cross. These are like wonderful things to know, wonderful facts to know. But there's a difference in knowing God intimately and personally and relationally and knowing things about him. Knowing God occurs only through a saving relationship in Jesus Christ. So back to verse four now. We're gonna see a contrast with what Jesus prayed for, glorify me that I may glorify you, make much of me so that I can make much of you. And verse four, he says this, I glorified you on earth, 
having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify, glorify me now in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse four, Jesus speaks about the mission that he came to do and the mission that he accomplished. Some of these things, some of these verses sequentially, I'm gonna be moving a little bit faster through because we have to get to the thematic part, which is really important. Jesus had a mission, he accomplished that mission. In verse five, we're gonna be here just for a moment, look with me there. Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Again, he is adding another layer, what I mentioned earlier, to what he prayed about in verse one. Glorify me that I can glorify you, but with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. One of the tenets of Orthodox Christianity that separates us from the cults, that would separate us from any other denominations that would profess Christ, is this right here. How they see what they believe, how they view on the deity of Jesus Christ and his personhood. And there's many other wonderful churches in Weatherford where we can link arms because these tenets of Orthodox Christianity we affirm and we can gladly fellowship with one another with that regard. But there's many of them that we cannot because they don't believe Jesus is who he really is. The Mormons believe differently. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe differently. The Unitarians believe differently. But clearly, in verse five, Jesus says this. He is testifying of his eternal nature. And it doesn't get any more clearer than this. He was with the Father in eternity past before the world was created. And that changes everything. We're gonna move on now to Jesus' second petition. First petition was for himself to be glorified with the glory that he had before the foundation of the world. Now we're moving on to the second petition that Jesus gives us. And again, it's a petition for particular people. I'm gonna read six through 12, just to help us have a little better understanding of the context here, as well as so we can see how this petition is set up. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours were they, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. They are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. 
I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that scripture might be fulfilled. So here in these passages, namely six through nine, we can see this. Jesus, once again, has particular people in mind. Verse six, people that he manifested the Father's name to. Particular people, specific people. Particular people who kept the Father's word. Particular people who came to know the truth. You're gonna be hearing particular in your sleep. Particular people who believe that the Father sent the Son. Particular people that Jesus says he is praying for. Those the Father had given him and not the world. This prayer, again, is for people who belong to God. This is not a prayer for everyone that's on the planet. Verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name. And this is the petition that we're going to be looking at heavily this morning with the time that we have left. Holy Father, keep them in your name. So what is this specific second petition and who is it for? Let's answer the second part first. Let's find out who the them is. The them is who Jesus has been praying for since the beginning. They are his disciples. They are the ones that Jesus was with in the upper room as he discipled them, as he preached to them, as he taught them, as, uh, as they shared the Passover meal together. They are Jesus' disciples, but not only Jesus' disciples then. And I'll cover more of that in just a second. This second pe petition of Jesus for disciples then, those that the Father had given Christ as a gift, Ephesians 1, who were decided upon before the foundation of the world, who were elected and predestined. This is a request by Jesus to the Father that the Father would keep them. This is a prayer by Christ to the Father for protection and preservation of the them, of the particular people. This doesn't mean, I don't want us to get crossways here, this doesn't mean the text says that people who were chosen, who were elected, who were given as the gift, that it's possible for them to lose what that gift that they've already been given of eternal life. That's not what the text is saying. There is no risk of those who were given as a gift to the Son by the Father, who were elected, predestined, called, justified, etc. We know this going back to John chapter 10. Maybe you kept your finger there. I'm going to read the remainder of John chapter 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. We sang about that just a moment ago. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. Is he greater than Satan? Is he greater than yourself? My Father is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We hear these precious promises of eternal life, of protection, of preservation from the good shepherd to sheep, particular sheep. He knows them. This sheep he knows. He knows their name, and he calls them out. He gives them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them from his hand or the Father's. So in this first petition of the high priestly prayer, by Jesus, other than Jesus praying for himself, he prays specifically that they would be protected, that they would be kept, that they would be preserved by the Father. Why is that? Think about what's about to happen. What has Jesus been warning his disciples about all along in his years of ministry? That his death is coming. Crisis is about to happen to these disciples. They are going to see their Lord, their rabbi, their teacher, their friend be taken into custody, be beaten, be scourged, put on a cross, tortured for hours, perish. Body is taken away where he's lay in the grave of a wealthy man. They are about to face crisis. And Jesus wanted his people, particular people, for the Father to protect them. And Jesus prays for that. What other reason could it be? It could be because the world hates them just as it hated Jesus. Jesus gave them that warning. The world hates me. The world's going to hate you. Also, because the thief. In John chapter 10, we get the warning that the thief, the enemy, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So Jesus' prayer is this. Father, Holy Father, keep them. Don't release them. Don't let them go. Hold on to them. And I came across this wonderful narrative by uh, R.C. Sproul who gives us wonderful imagery here. I want you guys to listen to this closely. Imagine a father walking beside a railroad track with his three-year-old son. Many of you dads in here have kiddos that age, and you're like, why would a dad do that? It's for the sake of the story. Imagine a father walking beside a railroad track with his three-year-old son. There is danger at hand. So the father holds the child's hand. If the boy's safety depends upon the strength of his own grip on the father's hand, he is in grave danger. The boy could let go and run smack dab into an oncoming train. He could lose his grip, wander into that path. What keeps the child from destruction, R.C. Sproul says, is not the boy's grip on the father's hand, but the father's grip on the child's hand. This is what Jesus was asking, praying, petitioning, 
requesting the Father to do. Father, keep a grip on my people. Keep a grip on my disciples. So this petition is for protection. In verse 12, Jesus says these words of John 17. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, and I have guarded them, and not one has been lost except the son of the destruction, that scripture may be fulfilled. Jesus reiterates right here, even he has sovereign ability to keep them in the Father's name, to keep them secure, and he guarded them. Another way that God has so designed his protection is not only through the efforts, through the sovereignty of the good shepherd, the great shepherd, but what he invites under shepherds in to do. We can read in John chapter 21. You don't have to turn there. Jesus tells Peter to tend my sheep, to watch over, to guide, to protect. Acts 20, 28 Pastors are given this weighty instruction, pay careful attention to yourselves and to who else? All of the flock, which is the Holy, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, under shepherds, under the great shepherd, to keep watch over the flock that God has entrusted to us. So when sheep leave the flock, they wander off of paths of righteousness. They go into other pastures that they weren't meant to be on. A part of God's grace for your life is he has entrusted you, your life, your soul, to whom pastors, under shepherds, one day will have to give an account for to come after you, to plead with you, to pray with you, to call you back to paths of righteousness, to call you back to pastures that you belong on. And it's a task, friends, that I can honestly say that the pastors here take with great privilege, and it's one that we can't carry out perfectly, and that we only carry out by God's grace. The passage says there in verse 11, and 12, there was one who was lost. But it wasn't lost. He wasn't lost. This particular person wasn't lost because of inability, of any weakness of God, but so that Scripture might be fulfilled. This, of course, we know is talking about Judas, who you remember betrayed Jesus for shekels of silver. We know that Judas was lost because Scripture says so. And we can read this narrative of Judas in one chapter below 17, 18, verses 3 through 9. Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell 
to the ground. So he asked them again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Besides Judas, let these other particular people that were with me, these disciples, these who I'm protecting, let them go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. One of those whom you gave me, I have lost, not one. Judas was lost. You might be thinking to yourself, could that also happen to anyone else? And I would like to drop down to verse 20. Remember I told you at the beginning of the sermon in my introduction that this is about particular people, the disciples then. Is it for anybody else? Absolutely. Beloved, uh, verse 20 of 17, I do not ask for these only disciples. I not only ask for them. Jesus not only prays for them, but also for those who will believe in me through your word. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, it's because you believed in him through the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1 tells us. Beloved, this is a reference to you. Jesus is praying for you. We if you know Christ, not know about him, if you know him, you've been given as a gift to the Son. Jesus was not only praying for his disciples in the upper room, but he prayed for you then, and he prays for you today. And the reason that we don't become like Judas is to answer my question, can that happen again? We persevere, not in our own strength, we persevere because of our great high priest intercession. He prays for you. And I think to help us understand that moving very quickly, I want us to go to Luke chapter 22. I want us to see just how effective Jesus' prayers are because there was one that could have been lost in addition to Judas, but it didn't happen. Luke 22, verse 31 through 32. Simon, Simon, Jesus is speaking to who? Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But what? I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The very prayers that Jesus gave and offered, petitioned, requested to the Father on the disciples' behalf or also on your behalf, that your faith won't fail. Like Judas, Peter had a great fall. He denied Christ three times, if you remember. Peter was restored and he persevered in faith. Why? And he repented. Why is that? Because Jesus prayed for Peter. What about Judas? Is God not sovereign? Did Jesus pray for Judas? 
and those prayers weren't answered by God. Jesus didn't have any sovereign ability to have Judas be kept safe and protected. Jesus didn't pray for Judas. Scripture was fulfilled. Judas was not prayed for. And if you're worried that you might end up like Judas, if you're struggling with true assurance that you do know the Lord, this should be of wonderful encouragement to you. You are prone to wonder and sin. But those who belong to Christ, those who are his gift, those who were chosen before the foundation of the world, those whom Jesus prays for to remain in the faith, remain in the faith because what he completes, I'm sorry, what he begins, according to Philippians, he brings it to completion. What good work God starts in your heart, he brings to completions. So, like that father walking near his child on the railroad track, your hand is in the hand of the father and he will not let you go. Now there is a little warning about Judas's, and I'll give this short warning here. It's actually a warning by Thomas Brooks, the Puritan author. He says this word, these words. How many Judases have we in these days that kiss Christ, yet betray Christ? In their words, profess him, yet in their works, deny him. How many bow their knee to him, yet in their hearts despise him? How many call him Jesus, and yet do not obey him as Lord? There are many Judases in the world, I'm afraid to say. Judas was active in ministry while he was with Jesus, was he not? There are many Judases today who are active in ministry who do not know the Lord and they're active in ministry for other reasons other than to bring God honor and glory in serving him out of the outpouring of their hearts because what God has done for them. If you were not in Christ, like Judas, you were lost. And you will perish one day for eternity because you've sinned against a holy God. But God, who is rich in mercy, he has given you an opportunity to be here today so that Grace Covenant Church can appoint you to Christ, who endured the cross and despised its shame, who died for sinners. You must know that you are a sinner, and you must know that you cannot save yourself. And you must know that there is salvation in no other name than in Jesus Christ who died for the sins of all those who would turn to him and believe. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you know facts about God, but you don't know God personally, that message was for you. 
call upon the name of the Lord while he can be found. And then my other message, my last message, and I'm closing with this. For those who know the Lord, because of the love that was set upon you before the foundation of the world, although you aren't lovely, and I'm not lovely, and you have no righteousness, and I have no righteousness, because of that love that was set upon you, because you didn't contribute anything, and I didn't contribute anything but my sin, God had you in mind. And not only did he have you in mind, but he set his love upon you. Out of his abundant mercy, he predestined that one day, at a particular day, as a particular person, you would come to know him. And he would give you the gift of faith, and he would give you the gift of repentance, it says in 1 Timothy, and you would walk with the Lord in relationship, intimately, personally, relationally. And right now, arguing how much God loves you, if you haven't heard that message already, God loves you so much that Jesus gave his life for you. He took the punishment you deserve. And right now, he prays for you. And no one can take you from his hand or the Father's. And one day, you will be presented to him. And you will be like him. And you will see him as he really is. J.I. Packer says these words, there is tremendous relief in knowing God's love to me is utterly realistic. Based at every point in knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery can disillusion him about me. He knows everything about you, and yet he still loves you. Brothers and sisters, you were loved with an everlasting love. Therefore, he has continued his faithfulness to you. And I pray that whenever the winds of doubt blow through you, recalling what Martin Lloyd-Jones said earlier, that you wouldn't see these truths as abstract, but you would see them about you. He loves you. Let's pray. Father, you deserve all the glory. Lord, who are we that you are mindful of us? That you had us in mind in eternity past, that you would set your love upon us, that you would think about us, that you would send your son to die on a cross to make a way of people like us to be reconciled to a holy God. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. Thank you for protection. If we could lose what you have given to us, we would have already done it. But thank you, Jesus. You have constant intercession on our behalf. By your love, we are accepted because you are a good and gracious king. And with empty hands, we rejoice and we praise you. Amen.